This is Chad Harrington here. My company, Harrington Interactive Media, produces and sponsors this podcast. We help you create and market media. And if you're thinking about launching a podcast, we'd love to help. We'll help you get your message out there and generate leads too. To start a conversation with us, click on our website link in the show notes of this episode and go to harringtoninteractive.com. This is the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter. We are a group of men who gather together to encourage each other in friendship and in faith, and to support each other to be better husbands, fathers, and better men in the marketplace and in our communities. Friendship at NCS happens through our regular meetings in local chapters all across the country. The Franklin, Tennessee chapter meets the first and third Thursday each month at Puckett's Grocery and Restaurant in downtown Franklin from 7 to 8 a.m. In this episode, Michael Cusick shares his talk called Owning Our Brokenness, recorded on March 15, 2012. I want to start with a passage uh, that some of us might be familiar with. I didn't bring my uh, paper Word of God, but I have it here digitally. I want to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and who was raised again. Christ's love compels me, said Paul. And, and because of that love that compels me, I no longer live for myself, but I live for him. I live for this larger story. I live outwardly to give myself from the deepest part of who I am. As a young Christian, I became a believer either in 1980 or 1994. I'm not sure because the first time I encountered the love of Jesus beyond just saying a prayer of salvation was in 1994 as my life began to unravel. But I memorized this verse early on in my faith. And I remember praying so hard and desiring so bad. I want to be a man who is compelled by the love of Christ. And I studied that word, and in Greek, that word compelled connotates the picture of an ox cart in front of a cart, pulling it, chained, connected, and that that cart can't not move forward with the ox. It's it's an idea of being strained, constrained. And yet, as a young Christian, and I thought about that verse and this idea of wanting to be compelled, driven by the love of Christ, I would lay in bed at night and I would think, gosh, I sure feel compelled by a lot of other things. I feel like there's things that I'm doing that I don't want to be doing that I just can't not do, that I'm constrained to do. Things like lust, things like lying and deceit, things like drinking alcohol at a level and in a way which most of my friends in ministry didn't know. Things like pornography. And eventually, as all that escalated, it got into deeper and deeper forms of sexual compulsion and sexual addiction and more and more deception. I found myself becoming more and more uh, publicly a man that I was not privately. And I began to wrestle with, why can I not be compelled by the love of Christ the way that I want to be? And I think if we're honest as men, and I know that this group is about authenticity and transparency in community, if we're honest in those brief moments when our iPhone is turned off or we get inside our car and we, 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 we turn off the radio, or in those moments when we're laying in bed, 
I think that we all come to terms with something inside of us where we realize we're, we're not very compelled by the love of Christ sometimes. We're compelled by things like fear and anger and shame and, and self-protection. And as I've talked to men over the last 20-plus years, I've heard men basically say two things. The reason why I'm not compelled by Christianity and by the love of Christ and by this larger story is because there's something wrong with me. And it really takes two forms. Number one, I'm not spiritual enough. If I was just more spiritual, typically defined by if I would read my Bible more, if I would pray more, if I would get more accountability from brothers in Christ, then somehow I would discover this key that turns the lock, that opens the door that I walk into this room called the Christian life that I want to live. The other thing that I hear is, is, is something more along the lines of, well, I'm just not disciplined enough. If I had enough discipline, you know, I can run marathons and 10Ks and I set that goal, but I need to be that intentional with my walk with God. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not disciplined enough. The problem with both of those is that it puts it back on us. And the message that I hear a lot in Christianity that I don't believe is a biblical message, a gospel message, a good news message, is the problem is that it's about us transforming ourselves. It's about us trying harder. It's about us flexing our moral muscles so that us and Jesus can kind of tag team wrestle the problem to the ground. That doesn't sound like freedom. That doesn't sound like what, what I thought I was getting into when I became a Christian and I heard the words of Jesus saying, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to bring life abundantly. And you know what? If you know the truth, it will set you free. And so I'd find myself laying in bed and in the car and saying, Jesus, why do I not feel free? And someone said, by the way, that freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do, but the ability to do what you most deeply want to do. If you're a Christian, if Jesus Christ lives in you this morning, regardless of what you did last night, last week, last year, regardless of that thing deep down inside of you that nobody knows about, regardless of the, 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 the you that's public and the part of you that's private that perhaps nobody knows about, regardless of that, right now, your deepest desire, your most core desire is to love God and to walk in his ways. And that's true because of the new covenant. And Jesus held up the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. There's a whole new arrangement where God put his want-tos into you instead of the have-tos. And so if it's not us trying harder, being more disciplined, and being more spiritual, what is it? I want to suggest to you that what keeps us from being compelled, constrained, driven by the love of Christ is brokenness brokenness. In the last 10 to 15 years, there's been songs and art and books written about brokenness, and that's a really good thing. But most people that I encounter are kind of confused about what brokenness is. You ask an average Christian man, what's brokenness? And they'll say, well, I think in Psalm 51, it says something like David uh, prayed, Lord, you desire a broken and contrite spirit. And so what many of us conclude is that brokenness is feeling so bad about yourself and beating yourself up so much and, and being in such sackcloth and ashes that whatever it is that you did that you're broken about, that you're never going to do that again. That's one kind of brokenness that's a little bit misrepresented, but I call that, that's represented in Psalm 51, the brokenness of God. And that's a gift of God when we come to the end of ourselves, when we come to the end of that striving of trying harder to be more spiritual or be more disciplined. 
But there's another kind of brokenness which is woven all throughout Scripture in all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. And in one sense, apart from Jesus being the point of that larger story, the other point is that we're broken and the world is broken and we can't fix ourselves. We need a Savior. We need kingdom come. And so I want to talk about brokenness, that other kind of brokenness, the brokenness of the world, and we are in the world on four levels. And I want to talk about four W's. Wickedness, weakness, woundedness, and warfare. Let me start with wickedness. Wickedness, you might hear that word and think of Osama bin Laden or Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer or something like that. But it's simply the word from Isaiah 53, 6 that says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own way and gone away from God. That's all the word wickedness means. But it also is a W and it fits into this cute four-letter illustration. So it's not the really, really bad guy. It's the energy inside of us that turns from God and wants to run our own life. In uh, 1989, I woke up one morning. I did what most people do that are in youth ministry. I was working with uh, Young Life for about six years, and I finally graduated college and had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew I didn't want to be in youth ministry because I was burned out. So in Cleveland, Ohio, you start a painting company. And uh, so I started a painting company. I was heading to a job one morning to finish, and uh, I looked in the, the, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and the headline across the front of the Cleveland Plain Dealer said, FBI Raids Escort Service. Escort Service is, of course, a euphemism for high-priced prostitution, and the reason it had made the headlines was because uh, several local celebrities and athletes were involved in this quote-unquote scandal. And back then there was no internet, and so the madam of the escort service had a little black book, and the FBI confiscated that little black book. And the problem, when I was looking at that headlight, or head, not headlight, headline, as a 22-year-old man, was that my name was in that little black book. I had become a Christian man with a double life, doing youth ministry uh, by day and evening and doing prostitution and uh, escort services and massage parlors and video arcades and pornography and chronic masturbation by night and any other time I could, I could get it. And that morning, for the first time, I was encountered with the truth. And that truth of who I was that I could no longer hide behind this mask is the beginning of the end for me where I began to be set free. I didn't know what to do, but I knew I had to do something, so I called a, my, one of my sisters who had been in Christian counseling. She gave me the name of a Christian counselor, and um, I called him up, and 24 hours later, I was sitting in his office. And uh, I'm, a, I'm an Irish Catholic storyteller, and so I walked into this counselor's office with my heart pounding and you know, with the headline there and not knowing if I was going to go to jail or if the FBI was going to show up at my door. And I sat down in the counselor's office, and uh, I started to talk, and I started to tell my story, and I started to get really animated, and I started to try to crack him up and get him to engage with me and to get him to smile. And as I told my story about sexual abuse and emotional abuse and growing up in an alcoholic home, he just kind of looked at me, and he looked into my eyes, and he didn't smile, and he didn't engage, and he didn't give in to my repartee and my patter and my, my charm. He just kind of engaged with me, and he listened, and he shook his head, and he did that counselor body language kind of thing of, hmm, yeah, but he didn't say anything. And at the end of the session, he conspicuously lifted his arm like they teach you in counseling school and looked at his watch to let him you know the session was ending. And he said, would you, would you like to hear my thoughts? And I said, well, that's kind of what I'm here for. And he said, I have a, I have a, a comment and a question. My comment is, you strike me as a very lonely man. 
And at that moment, it was as if he had aimed and released a precisely guided arrow into my soul. I had never thought of myself this outgoing, charming, I can win kids over and start a Young Life Youth Ministry and get people to laugh at me. I'd never thought of myself as lonely. And yet he put words to and he labeled something that was absolutely true about me and no one had ever seen or said. And I felt like I wanted to run out of that room and I felt like I wanted to put my feet up on his coffee table and talk for another couple of hours. My head was spinning and I knew something was just said that was really important, but I I didn't know what it was all about. And he said, and now my question, the comment, you strike me as a lonely man, but my question, are you ever at a loss for words? (laughs) My My first thought was, isn't that entirely socially inappropriate? I mean, that's not the kind of thing you, you say to people talking in Starbucks. And again, I, I, I thought to myself, he caught me. I'm caught. And I'm caught on two levels. I'm caught with my sin. And listen to this, brothers. Not the sin of prostitution and porn and masturbation and lust and deception and alcohol abuse. I told him about all that. He was speaking to a sin that if those things were the tip of the iceberg, he was speaking to what was below the waterline. Proverbs 20 says, The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. In that one sentence, you strike me as a very lonely man, he started to draw out the purposes of my heart. There was something going on in me that was deeper than just sin. What was that? When he said, you strike me as a lonely man, he was speaking to my dignity. He was speaking to the glory. He was speaking to the part of me that was created in the image of God with longings and desires and passions that were absolutely legitimate. If he had focused on my sin and said, well, you know, um, what you need to do is get more accountability. And uh, there's a guy here that I'm working with, and we do a group, and groups are a good thing, by the way, and I'm going to set you up with an accountability partner, and you need to meet with him. I would have walked out of the room because I I would have said, you know, I've, I've done that for five years, and it doesn't work. But he put words to my dignity, and just by saying, you strike me as a lonely man, he was saying, there's something good in you that longs for connection and intimacy uh, and, and, and joining with another that you've not been able to find in everything you've been doing. And then on the other side, are you ever at a loss for words? He was talking about my sin. Dignity in the longing, depravity in my sin. But again, brothers, the sin was not, here's all the sin you're doing. The sin was, are you ever at a loss for words? In other words, the very thing that I had done my whole life I was doing with him in this 50-minute session that I was paying him to help me. I was holding him off. I was keeping myself in isolation. I'm broken. At least I think I am. I don't even know what that means. I'm here for help, and I want you to help me, but guess what? I'm going to charm you. I'm going to talk. I'm going to be funny, and I'm really not going to let you in. I'm just going to kind of do my thing, my spiel. He caught me. Now, wickedness, weakness, woundedness, and warfare. Wickedness is what we focus on because we're good evangelical Bible-believing Christians, and I'm one of them, ordained in the Evangelical Church Alliance. But 
as men that are desiring to be transparent and authentic and to live in community as we really are and not as we should be, we need to get over wickedness. We need to get over our sin. And you might think that that's heretical, you might think that that's radical, but did Jesus not suffer enough on the cross? Did God not pour out enough wrath on Christ? Did he not shed enough blood to cover our sin? Well, aren't we supposed to be aware of our sin? God doesn't take our sin for granted because it cost him so much, the price of his own son. But let me tell you this, and I believe this is biblical. If you ask for chapter and verse, I don't have something right off the top of my head, but I'd say start in Genesis and end in Revelation, and you'll answer the question. (laughs) However, God doesn't take our sin for granted, but he assumes it. He assumes it. Whatever your worst sin is, God is not up in heaven like Woody Allen, wringing his hands, pacing back and forth, going, oy vey, I can't believe what you've done. Instead, he goes, of course, of course. Now, what are we going to do about that? So as I talk with men, I say, yeah, we're wicked. Actually, we have a sinful nature. Our hearts are not desperately wicked because Jeremiah 17:9 is not just Old Testament, it's Old Covenant, and we now live in the New Covenant, and our hearts are made new. So I want us to go beyond wickedness, and sometimes I'll take a whiteboard and I'll draw these four words, wickedness, weakness, woundedness, and warfare, and I draw a line beneath the wickedness, and I say, let's go below the, below the waterline. Weakness. Why do we need to focus on our weakness? Because weakness, woundedness, and warfare, and I'm talking about the lies of the enemy, not demonic possession or anything like that, those are the things that trigger our sin and our wickedness. Those are the things that we carry shame about when we ought not carry shame that then triggers us to take matters into our own hands and to pursue the fulfillment of our longings and desires apart from God. And so my thesis this morning with brokenness, wickedness, weakness, woundedness, and warfare is that if you don't know your brokenness, if you don't know as a man how you're broken and exactly what that brokenness is, if you don't own your brokenness, then your brokenness is going to own you. Richard Rohr, the Franciscan priest, has written that uh, pain that is not transformed becomes pain that is transmitted. Scripture talks about the sins of the forefathers generationally, and scripturally there's a lot of ways that that can happen. But I like to take Rohr's statement and say brokenness that is not transformed or surrendered becomes brokenness that is transmitted. I'm a dad of a 14-year-old and a 9-year-old, and so I haven't even got into the upper ages yet, but I can sure see that with my kids, how my brokenness plays out in their lives and how desperately I need the gospel for God to continue to center me and to bring me back to him and how desperately I need God to work in their lives. So let's talk about the remaining three. Weakness, woundedness, and warfare. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, I boast in my weakness. I was talking to a man recently who um, uh, had some great shame in his life over not finishing his college degree. He was four credits short of his college degree, and he was a minister of a fairly large church, and he was now in his 50s. And there was this secret shame that he had that he didn't finish his college degree. And we talked about whether, uh, whether he should go back and do it or not. He was kind of like, well, you know, I don't know. And then I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the Hobby Lobby, and I want you to get a frame, and uh, I want you to go on to Microsoft Word, and I want you to create a certificate for yourself. 
And I think he thought that I was saying, um, you know, I wanted him to create like a graduation certificate to put on the wall to motivate him to, you know, you can do it and get those four credits. I said, um, I want you to put across the top, uh, and forgive my language here this morning, I'm not actually going to swear, but I'm going to use a colloquialism. I, I, I told him to put across the top of this frame the University of Effing Up. E-F-F-I-N-G-U-P. It's a small university in Germany, I understand. And um, <clears throat> don't eat the schnitzel. It's got schnauzer in it, okay? Um, for those of you that came up in the 1980s, that was a reference to stripes. Um, university of effing up. And I said, underneath this, I want you to say that, uh, that I declare that I have not finished my bachelor's degree. And I said, while you're at it, I want you to list any other failures, weaknesses, shortcomings, flaws, idiosyncrasies, things you don't like about yourself. And I want you to go back to church. We were spending two weeks together in what I call a soul care intensive, three hours a day for two weeks, and uh, put it up on your wall. And, and the blood drained out of his face. And he said, I can't do that. I said, are you a Christian? Yeah, why? I said, well, as Christian men, we're supposed to boast in our weakness, like Paul. We had a long conversation, and it was shortly after that that his eyes teared up. And this man realized that he'd been living his life, that he'd been compelled, not by the love of Christ. Of course, part of him was compelled by the love of Christ. The Holy Spirit lived inside of him. God had used him in ministry. He's very, very gifted. He had touched lives for Christ, led people to Jesus. But most of his life had been compelled, not by the love of Christ, but by shame. Shame. And brothers, I believe that one of the biggest barriers to knowing God and living out the gospel and living not for ourselves but for him who died for us today is shame. Shame is never from God. And let me tell you the difference. Maybe some of you have been around a little and heard this or done counseling or read a book, but guilt says I've done wrong. Shame says I am wrong. Guilt says I've done bad. Shame says I am bad. Guilt says there's something objective that has been violated, like I was driving the other day in a school zone out on Franklin Road, and it was 15 miles an hour and flashing, and I wasn't driving 15 miles an hour, and I was guilty. If a police officer pulled me over, I would have been guilty. Shame is if the officer walked up to my car and said, I can't believe you uncaring so-and-so, and do you know that you're in Tennessee, and you're breaking the law, and you Colorado guy, you must think you're John Denver. You know, that... That would be shame. And then instead of getting a ticket, instead of, instead of getting a ticket, I would drive away singing, Rocky Mountain High, Colorado, and I, and, but I'd feel shamed, right? Wouldn't it be easier to feel shame than to have to pay a ticket? I mean, wouldn't that be great? You'd go into work. How you doing? Awesome, man. I got pulled over going 75 in a school zone, and I got shamed by the cop, but no ticket. Yeah. He said I was John Denver. See, Guilt requires humility. Humility is not beating yourself up. Humility is, as uh, Thomas Merton said, humility is being precisely the person that you are before God and others. That's a radical definition of humility. My friend Bill Thrall, who wrote a book called True Faith, says humility is simply trusting God and others with who you are. And with our sin, we humble ourselves and we go to God and we trust in the blood and we go to the cross 
and our sin is taken care of and it's separated as far as the east from the west. But with shame, shame is the opposite of humility. Shame is pride, saying, you know what? I'm going to believe that I'm bad and that I'm unforgiven and that there really is something wrong with me, and I'm going to work really hard to overcome that. Shame always leads to one of two things. Hiddenness, which is where we hide our true self and our true heart, or it leads to performance. I've got to be more spiritual. I've got to be more disciplined. And performance and hiddenness keep us from the love and the grace of God, and therefore from being compelled by that love. Andy Comiskey, in his book Strength and Weakness, said that, that shame is like a raincoat over the soul that repels the living water of Jesus. And I've lived most of my life, I'm 47, and I've lived at least 30 years and struggling on and off every day between now and then. I've lived most of my life with this raincoat over my soul that has repelled the living water of Jesus. And most men believe something like, I'm not good enough, I don't measure up. When I get in a room full of men like this, I walk in, two master's degrees, licensed professional counselor, ordained minister, I've written a book about shame, and the first thing I do is I say, okay, who's above me, who's below me? Who do I want to talk to, make me feel better about myself? Who do I want to avoid? How does this guy over here make me feel? Ah, uh, he's better looking than me. This guy over here, well, he's skinnier than me. You know, I, uh, I don't look like I'm running a triathlon and have 2% body fat, so I'm not going to talk to him. That's where I live. And that, brothers, is bondage. Now, here's the problem with that. If we want to know Christ and be compelled by Christ, that's the kind of thing that that's not just a psychological barrier. That keeps you from being free and living as the man that you were meant to be. So weaknesses. We all come into the world with gifts and talents, and we hold those out here, and we take our weaknesses, our flaws, and our limitations, and we put them behind our back, and we present our best self to the world. Eldridge called that being a poser. Brennan Manning called that being an imposter. Uh, Jungian psychologists have called that our false self. But we, 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 we create this false self, and a false self can't be loved. A false self can't know Christ. And so our weaknesses need to be owned and embraced, and we need to boast about them so that we can be known and loved. Our wounds, what are wounds? Very briefly, get into a group of men, and we start talking about our wounds, and everybody's heart rate goes up, and we start to squirm and things like that. Our wounds are not our sin, but the sin done to us, knowingly or unknowingly. The hurts that we have been given, the ways that we, our hearts have been wounded, generally in one of two ways. Wounds of presence, things that were done that never should have been done, and wounds of absence. Now, I, I work with men in all different positions of leadership. And when people come to Colorado and do a two-week intensive with me, they fill out this form. And one part of the form is this checklist for your wounds. And uh, uh, to, to a man, almost every person leaves that section blank. N-A, not applicable, not me, I'm good. And then, then they tell me their stories. Stories of a man finding his father who had hung himself. He was the first one that found him when he was 12 years old. Stories from a man whose father handed him a box of condoms and said, uh, don't get a girl pregnant. Stories from uh, a kindergartner whose parents were killed on the way to his first day of school. And stories of men with deep brokenness and deep wounds, and they've gone through life just compensating, saying that didn't affect me. And yet our wounds are places where the warfare, that fourth W, the lies of the enemy come against our weaknesses and our wounds, and we take in those lies and believe things like, I'm basically not good enough. I'm basically 
uh, somebody that people really knew me, they wouldn't want me, they wouldn't love me. You know, if I get my needs met, I can't get my needs met by depending on you. I've got to take matters into my own hands. And we all have this core passion or compulsion that may or may not be sex, it may or may not be overeating or gambling or shopping, but it's something like this. I have to get affirmation, respect, significance, something on my own apart from God. And here's the thing. We don't try harder to overcome our brokenness. As a matter of fact, if we try to be more spiritual or more disciplined to overcome our brokenness, it simply becomes a barrier to knowing God. But here's the beautiful thing of the gospel, the beautiful thing of the story, where out of a death and ugly crucifixion, God brings new life and resurrection. That's a model that applies to all of our lives. When the seed falls into the ground and dies, that's us owning and embracing and saying, yeah, I'm broken. Not only am I wicked, but there's weaknesses and stuff that, that I hide and that I don't want to face and that I bear wounds that have profoundly affected me and shaped me. And there are lies that have come against me because there's an enemy who hates my soul. And so if, instead of trying to manage our brokenness or trying to, to overcome it, we simply must surrender it. And surrender is not a word that means that we close our eyes in prayer and count to three, and on three we say, okay, Jesus, on three I'm going to surrender this, and we let go. Surrender is not let go and let God. It's giving up. And in the shower this morning, I had a strange picture of what this was. Denver was pretty invested in some of the playoff games for the Super Bowl, but was it Eli Manning and Tom Brady, right? And Tom Brady was uh, in the Super Bowl really working hard to come back, you know, down to the last seconds. Wouldn't it have been absolutely radical if Tom Brady just set down the ball with two minutes left and said, um, I surrender. I surrender. I give up. Now, everything inside of us as men goes, no way. Absolutely no way. I mean, that would be weak. That would be pathetic. And then his supermodel wife would really have some things to say about the, the other team. <laughs> but, but you know what? That's what our Lord Jesus calls us to do. That in the battles that we fight for our own soul to give us a sense of value and worth and significance and affirmation, he's calling us to give up. And out of that giving up, God in the flesh, Jesus, the visible face of the invisible God, says that when you lose your life, your striving, your hard work, you're trying harder, that you will find life. And Jesus is life. And brothers, this morning, God wants you more than you could possibly imagine. He doesn't want you to try harder. He doesn't want you as if you were at your best. He doesn't want your ideal self. He wants you today as you are, nothing else. Matthew 15. The Pharisees were coming up to Jesus, trying to catch him and impress him with their spirituality. And Jesus said, here's your problem. You honor me with your words, and your hearts are far from me. And then his next words were some of the most castigating words in the New Testament. Your hearts are far from me, and your worship is in vain. Brothers, don't let your worship be in vain. The part of you that can most profoundly worship is the deepest, truest, most real part of who you are, and that's all God wants. I'll end with this. Elie Wiesel, the Nobel Peace Prize 
uh, winner and Holocaust survivor, told a rabbi story. I collect rabbi stories. And, and this was simply that in Romania during the Marxist Revolution, there was a great rabbi who was put in prison. True story. And one of the prison guards came up to him every day, and he would walk closer and closer to the cell until one day he finally got enough courage to say to the rabbi, Rabbi, may I ask you a question? I am not a Jew. I am not a religious man. The rabbi said, of course. He said, is it true that in the Holy Bible that, that God showed up and said, Adam, where are you? And the rabbi said, yes, that is, that is true. And he said, Rabbi, how could it be conceivable that the God of the universe asked Adam, a mere man, where he was? Why didn't he know where Adam was if he was God? And the rabbi didn't hesitate. And he said, oh, my son, God knew where Adam was. Adam didn't know where he was. See, we don't know where we are. And, and like Adam, we cover ourselves with fig leaves. And, and when God comes up wanting fellowship and prepared to kill an animal so that blood could shed, in Genesis 3, to foreshadow the blood of Christ on the cross, when he shows up that way, ready to pour out his mercy, even after taking the fruit, we hide, we run, and we blame others. She did it. He did it. Where are you? this morning in relation to your brokenness and the parts of you that God wants access to, the parts of you that potentially you could come into fellowship with another man and share your heart so that together you could be compelled from deep within you, not from trying harder, but by being who you are, compelled by the love of Christ, not to live for yourself, but to live for him who made you. Today, in the name of Jesus, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I bless each of you for your day and your walk with Christ. In his name, amen. You've been listening to the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter. Remember to check out Harrington Interactive Media. We'll help you launch your podcast with confidence and excellence so you can get your message out there and connect with your audience in measurable ways. That's harringtoninteractive.com. <laughs>